In the book of Ruth, we find a story of rather ordinary people doing rather ordinary things in rather ordinary places. But in the midst of all the ordinary, we bear witness to the extraordinary because God is present and active through it all. That is the hope for all of us in this Advent season. Surely God is with us. This content comes from Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity you give us every week to come and sit under your word. You are kind and merciful and a God who blesses his people when they do not deserve it. Please come into our lives and change our hearts. You come into our lives at the un- most unlikely of times and you give our broken hearts peace. You give our hungry, hungry souls satisfaction. So today, cast everything else out of our hearts and minds and let us open our hearts to grow deeper through your love and grace. We thank you that despite who we are and what we have done, you pursue us. You provide for us and you love us. We love you. Amen. All right, so in chapter one, um, which you guys have gone through the past couple weeks, we have this family from Bethlehem. You've got Naomi, Elimelech, Malan, and Chilean. So if you're going to name your kids, I probably wouldn't use at least three of those names. They're pretty bad. But, um, there's been a famine in Bethlehem, and so they, they hightail it to Moab. And in Moab, the sons marry two women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth, who is this, who this book is about. And so some time passes, and the, the patriarch, Elimelech, dies. Some more time passes, and the two sons also die. And so we're left with just the three of them. We, we have no um, proof or, or suggestion that Ruth or Orpah ever had kids. And so we're, we're stuck with uh, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law or daughter-in-laws. I don't, I don't know how you pronounce that. But um, Naomi makes the decision she's going to move back to Bethlehem. And the girls say, all right, you're a mom now, essentially. You know, we've been with you all this time. We're going with you. And she says, no, I'm going to... In her depression and her worry and her anxiety, she separate, wants to separate herself from them and move back to Bethlehem and say, all right, we're going with you. She said, no, 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 you got to stay here. Take husbands. There's no way for me to help you. And it goes back and forth for a bit. And then finally she convinces Orpah to stay. But Ruth says, nope, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Who your God is will be my God. And Orpah, then we know nothing else about Orpah after this happens, which is kind of odd, right? Like she's not really mentioned much else. Um, but you know, hopefully she has a good life. But I read in this Jewish commentary that I read, it says that Orpah, after she turns her back, um, after she leaves Naomi, turns her back on the Lord. And that very night, she sleeps with a hundred men and one dog. I was like, that is the weirdest commentary I've ever read. Like, why in the world? But that's like Jewish history. So I was like, well, hopefully she, uh, doing better than that. I don't know. But, um, Ruth goes, they return to Bethlehem, and the, the barley is back. The famine is gone, and they are uh, trying, to, trying to survive. So this catches us up to where we're at in chapter 2. So right, out, right off the bat, we're introduced to our last main character in the book of Ruth, a guy named Boaz. And Boaz is kind of the knight in shining armor of the book of Ruth. Really, if we think about it, Ruth is kind of like the... Disney princess movie of the Bible. 
You've got the, the damsel in distress who's poor and needy, and then a rich, strong man comes and saves her. But all joking aside, let's, let's, uh, let's get into the text and start, start figuring out what's going on here. So verses 1 through 7 say, Now Naomi had a relative of her, of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Lord be with you. And they answered, Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves of the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Ruth is trying to provide for her family. She's out working hard, trying to glean. So gleaning is kind of a, not really a concept that we deal with much today. So gleaning isn't, don't think that Ruth's out in like this giant cornfield, picking corn cobs, you know, putting them in her, in her basket and just having everything she needs. No, this is hard work. Like gleaning is, the field has been cut. They've already picked up all the sheaves and the sheaves are like, you guys have seen those pictures. Like you've got like the string wrapped around all the barley that's kind of like frayed out at the top. You've, you've seen that. It's like the grain. And, uh, but she's coming in after they've already cut it and kind of digging down through the, uh, the grass in order to get what's left over. So she's having to work extremely hard to make, um, uh, you know, this grain they use to make bread or flour or whatever they may. But um, in Leviticus, a law was established where the Jews who had money and owned land would leave the gleaning, so they wouldn't go back and sort up, try to, try to make money off of you know, the leftovers, but they would leave that and not cut the edges of the field so that the poor and needy could come behind, scrape it all up, and, uh, and make some food. But So that's, that's who Ruth is. She's not this super powerful woman. like we Unfortunately, she's portrayed a lot of times in the Bible. She's, she's poor and needy and hungry and working her butt off in order to provide for her and Naomi. So she's sorting through the barley scraps, and Boaz comes up and asks, who, who, who does this woman belong to? Which, unfortunately, in these historical times, women are kind of viewed like property. So like, but, but what he's getting at is, who is she? Who is, uh, what's her name? What, who is this person? And the, the servant replies, she is the Moabite girl from Moab. So one, one rule of thumb that the little, uh, this is really helpful for me. So one rule of thumb is if you're reading your Bible and something is repeated, it means that it has emphasis. So it's kind of odd that she says she's the Moabite girl from Moab. You would think we would know based off the first word that she's from Moab. But that may seem insignificant, but it isn't. So remember, the Moabites are not God's people. They are not Jews. So this goes all the way back to, do you guys remember Lot from the, um, Lot from the book of Genesis? You know, he's the nephew of Abraham. And Moab, so Lot has a son with his oldest daughter, and that son's name is Moab. 
And so see right from the start out of, of this group of people that they're, you know, they've got some difficulties going on. But all throughout history, they've seduced the men, they've cursed God. And you guys remember the story in Numbers where there's a guy riding his donkey and he's like beating it, trying to get it to go down the road. And the Lord starts talking through the donkey. He's like, man, stop beating on me. Um, and he changes the guy's mind and he starts like follow, like, you know, obeys the Lord in that moment. Well, what's happening there is that's a guy named Balaam, which is a pagan prophet who has been uh, given money by the Moabites to curse Israel. And so we see, you know, even through these famous Bible stories, there's this big tension going on between the Moabites and the Israelites. So when he says she is a Moabite from Moab, she's, that's not just a comment. They're saying, you might be want to be a little bit careful with that Ruth girl. She's, uh, she may not be as, as honest and as uh, honorable as she may have seemed. And I can identify with this a little bit. I'm from this little town outside of Summersville called Birch River. And like, this may seem like an exaggeration, but Birch River is known for troublemakers, drug addicts, and like murderers. And so like, I'm sure when I started dating Emily, her parents were like, man, you better look out for that Birch River boy. He's, uh, he's going to get you in trouble. He might kill you or something. But uh, no, in all seriousness, though, like, it's like, you better watch out for, for Ruth. She's, she's, a, she's a Moabite girl. So, but that doesn't matter to Boaz. He's like, I don't care who she is. He approaches her and he talks to her. And where, where she's from doesn't matter to him. This is something I want to grain in my son from day one. What people look like, what they act like, how, however they are, does not make a difference to the fact that they are created in the image of God. doesn't matter if everybody in their family has been a drug addict and a murderer. That doesn't mean that we treat them with some less intrinsic value. We love them maybe even more deep. We, we care for them even maybe deeper because of the difficulty. We, we as Christians are not called to say, oh, that, that's not our stepping ground. We, don't, we don't, shouldn't care for those people. They're, they're dangerous. No, we should be going into the dirt, going into the difficulty and caring for people. That's what, I mean, we see that that's what Boaz does here. But, and that's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't say, oh man, they're sinful humans. I'm not going to love them. That's just preposterous. No, he says, I want to go in and I'm going to be one of them. So, sorry for my little rant there, but next few verses say, um, Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after him. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, you go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should not take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz said to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how, your father, how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you, that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord and the God of Israel. Under the wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to me, your servant, even though I am not your servant. I think that this set of verses is some of the most impactful verses in all the book of Ruth. Maybe the most impactful verses in all the book of Ruth. Sorry, Paul. Still your thunder here. But um, 
we get to answer the question is, why does God bless Ruth? Why, why does God take this pagan woman and, and give her infinite blessings for all, the rest of her life? Um, you might say, well, it's obviously she worked hard. She, she left her family, and she takes care of Naomi. That's what he says right there, right? Not exactly. So why is God blessing Ruth? So let's read, let's read the, the middle of that again. It says, um, Lord, repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord. Why? Because you have taken refuge under his wings. We in here are kind of of the, the Reformed camp that we know that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, right? There's nothing we can do in, in front of Jesus to make him love us more. But right here we see, and I affirm this completely, is that there's only one action we as humans can take. The only one action we can do is place ourselves under the refuge of the Lord. Your work will end up empty-handed and you'll be discouraged. But you will never be discouraged if you place yourself under the wings of the Lord because his work is complete and his work is good. Um, even though I, I jokingly called Boaz the knight in shining armor, of this book, we could clearly see out of this text that he's not the hero. Ruth isn't the hero. Naomi's not the hero. God is the only hero in the book of Ruth. He cares for his people more than they could ever deserve and ever know. So um, God's also doing that for us. Every single day, you may not see it. It may, it may look like sickness. It may look like depression. It may look like just normal day-to-day things. It may, it may just look like, I jokingly said, you know, it may look like the baby spitting up on Emily's shirt this morning while she's trying to feed him. But God somehow in all of this is working it together for his good. And one day, one day we will be able to look back and say, his hand was in all of this. And so don't lose hope here today, that God is in your pain. God is in your suffering. God is in the mundane. And that's the one thing that we can hold on to for truth and joy every single minute of every single day. All right, so Boaz tells Ruth that she can stay and glean with his people, but that's not all he does. Let's, uh, let's, he just continues to bless um, Ruth. So let's read verses 14 through 18. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat behind the reapers, and he passed her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose again, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, which was about an ephah of barley. An ephah is like a, um, a little over half a bushel, but who knows what a bushel is. So you guys can Google that too if you want to. But um, she took it, went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and also she brought out and gave her what food she had left over from being satisfied. So Boaz is just blessing the crud out of Ruth. He's given her food. He's inviting her in like family. She's now not just gleaning after they've picked up the sheaves. And she's now in among the sheaves being able to get before they, you know, finish them off, being able to get the, the grain that's there, the barley that's there. 
Um, not only that, but they're also like pulling them out and leaving them for her. But Boaz doesn't just give her food. He doesn't just give her barley. He invites her in for dinner. He sits down. He cares for her. He brings in an outsider and cares for them like they're his own. Honestly, when was the last time that you guys ever did that? When was the last time that you, somebody that you, you don't know super well, you invited them into your home, you care for them, you treat them like family? Because transparently, that's not something I do very often. But that's, who, that's what we're called to do by, as, as Christians. Um, we're, we're called to lay down our lives for, for others and to care for the widow and the orphan. So I want, I want to encourage you now. We're in, we're in this Christmas season where everything seems like hope and joy and fun. But for a lot of people, Christmas is dark. Christmas is a time of pain and sadness and depression. But it doesn't have to be that way. We have been saved by putting our faith in Jesus and given a Holy Spirit that can really make changes on this world. Like, it's really easy, you know, like I said, none of our actions save us. None of our actions make, make us more valuable to God. But our, what our actions do is show how good God is to us, to the rest of this world, and give them hope. That, that's what Advent is, right? We're, we're sitting here, and we are hoping in what is to come. We're, we're anticipating the, uh, the birth of Jesus. But that's not the only thing Advent is about. It's also about anticipating what is to come again when Jesus fulfills everything. And so in this time, we need to be taking in people who aren't like us. We need to be caring for people who aren't our families. That, that's Advent. If we're just keeping it all inside the Christian family, we are completely wasting our time. But let's get back to, uh, to the verses here and see what old, old Naomi has to say about Ruth's day. So, and her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name who I worked today was Boaz. And Naomi said to her, daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative to ours and are one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go with, this young, with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So Naomi's starting to see it a little bit. Naomi's starting to see the, the glimmer of hope that God's hand is having in their lives. Um, so Boaz is a, is a relative of Naomi. Of not, not of Naomi, but of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And we, I, this is kind of a, a weird concept. It's not something that we, we do here. And I don't think it's a bad thing, but um, we, have this, we have this idea of the kinsman redeemer. So this kinsman redeemer in, in the Hebrew is called goel, which is kind of like the Christmas word noel, but it starts with a G. So that's some really, really uh, high-class Hebrew Bible study for you. But... Um, this idea of the kinsman redeemer is this Levite law created in Leviticus that whenever a woman, woman's husband dies and she becomes a widow, that the closest relative, whether it be a brother or a cousin or whatever, would, would redeem her, 
would would take her in, care for her, and give her everything she needs. Um, this this term kinsman redeemer may be new to a lot of us, but the term redeemer isn't right. You guys know what like for us Christians, redeemer is a word that we love, and so in the same way, the the word redeemer gives us this aura of complete deliverance and security. Um, so in a non-spiritual sense, a kinsman redeemer is someone who will deliver Ruth from her poverty and hunger and restore her to full security. Um, I think it's interesting here how we see twice how God's law provides for Naomi and Ruth, which is kind of, kind of difficult. Um, first, we see that God's Levite law says that Jews don't cut all their field, don't cut their field. They leave the corners and they leave the gleanings. That way, people who are poor and needy can have food to eat. But then also now we have this this idea of the kinsman redeemer, that um, when a widow's husband died, she will be provided for. So, I think in, in the Old Testament we have this idea that God is a, a wrathful God. In the Old Testament, he was a God of wrath, but now in the New Testament, he's a God of love. God's character is not, that's not God's character. God's character, he's a God of love in the Old Testament. We don't see it through Jesus, but look, how, look at how he provides for them just through his laws. God's laws, yes, do um, are, are set out there so that we see them, know that we can't work up to them, and then look to Jesus for, for our holiness. But also, these laws are put together for human flourishing. God loves us deeply that he even, like, look how much he loves them just by things that he set out, not, not even directly acting in their lives. Um, I'm not trying to get too political here, but who, it's not the government per se telling Boaz that he has to provide for the needy. It's God. God is the one who is saying, you need to do this. We don't need to be forced to love our neighbors. We as Christians need to be doing that despite what, you know, maybe the political sphere that you land in says, you know, or whatever else may be. We need, it is our responsibility as God's people to provide for those who are in need. So Naomi encourages her to stay, and she stays with Boaz the, the rest of the, the barley harvest. I do not know how long that is, but... Um, the book, the book of Ruth is kind of, is kind of like a, a lifetime movie. It's in and out, and it changes, and everything kind of, it does. God works things out in the end. But honestly, this, this book has so much to teach us about God, who he is, and who we are in him. So let's just start wrapping this thing up with some, with some application. So throughout this text, I've mentioned several things that we, that we can take and apply to ourselves. So we can be determined and hardworking like Ruth. We can provide for the needy like Boaz. We can embrace and love others that aren't like ourselves because we're created in the image of God. And we can humble our hearts and, and to both God and others. And these are all great things. And they're all things that we as Christians should do. But in the book of Isaiah, it says, our works in front of God are just like dirty rags. So unless we have a true understanding of what it means to be rooted in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, 
our, our works are a waste of our effort. When we have a right understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, then our works have power. Then our works have the ability to make a change. So, got one last application for you. And it's very simple, but it's the most life-changing application that you could have, period. Just like Ruth takes refuge under the wings of the Lord, I want you to take refuge in the blood of Jesus. So where is Jesus in the book of Ruth? Remember, Ruth knows nothing about Jesus. She doesn't know he's coming. And honestly, she's probably not that well-versed in Judaism. She's just started, um, you know, she's had some years with the brothers, but she probably doesn't even know that there's a Savior coming. But God, in his perfect foreknowledge, knew exactly what was going to happen when the book of Ruth was written. So God, all throughout the Old Testament, places in these characters or these types of Christ that give us an idea of who Jesus is and what he's going to do and and a hope for us as Christians to look back upon. We call this biblical typology. But it's it's not necessarily somebody who is perfect or somebody who is a savior but it's somebody who like exemplifies the character of God so we can look back and have hope in the future of who Jesus is. So look here. Ruth is a foreigner, God-cursing pagan given barley by Boaz in Bethlehem. He treats her with kindness, gives her all that she needs, not only for that day, but for all the, the barley harvest. Um, but not only that, he's also her kinsman redeemer. He will bring her out of the poor, broken, starving state that she's in and make her rich, full, and mend her broken and damaged heart. Boaz's actions should cause us to look forward to what Jesus is doing. Do you guys see that? We are poor and broken and needy, trapped by our sins and shortcomings, foreigners to the blessings and covenant of God, but he brings us into his family. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, pays the debt of our sin, delivers us out of spiritual poverty, spiritual hunger, and places us in eternal security with Christ. We are satisfied forever with Jesus for nothing but joy until the end of forever. But this is our hope in Advent. This is why we add a couple things to our list every Christmas season is not just so that we can, you know, say we did or check a box, but it's so that we can reflect on the fact that Jesus has done it all for us. He's purchased our happiness. He's purchased our salvation. He's purchased everything for us on the cross. So the only thing I have to say to you today, and I hope, I hope in this Advent season, when you're feeling overwhelmed and don't know what to do and We still haven't even decorated our Christmas tree yet. But none of that matters. Place yourself under the blood of Jesus because that's the only thing that will satisfy your soul for the rest of eternity. Um, Thank you guys so much for for having me back. I I love you. And uh, I know you guys love me. So um, I'll pray. Thanks. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this Advent season, even though it's hectic and confusing and we don't know what to do, that, that you show us through, through your simple means and through reading the Bible and through 
a book like Ruth, which you wouldn't typically think is something for Advent, but you show us how great your love is for us and how deeply you care for us. And while we're foreigners and exiles, you invite us into your family. Thank you for being our redeemer. Thank you that you take me from my poor, broken state and place me at your right hand for all eternity, not because of anything I've ever done, not because of anything I'll ever do, but because your son is good enough. Uh, We love you and thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.